well, after eight weeks of, of not preaching, it's hard to know where to kind of restart, you know. Um, so I took the advice of Maria from Sound of Music. She says to start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Uh, so take your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 1. Now, Maria is not the only reason I chose to go to Genesis chapter 1. That'd be poor um, reason to decide what passages to go to, right, based on musicals. Um, I'll tell you the real reasons. The first is that the series that I'm hoping to start next week um, is about one week short of ending where it needs to, which is Easter. And so this is sort of that that filler week, as it were. That's part of the reason. Another reason is that we were in Genesis 1 during our Fellowship in the Word, which was back in January with some of the men. Um, and we looked at this passage, and I found it very helpful as a theme running through these past eight weeks of sabbatical and seeking to understand rest. And so I want to kind of bring what that message was and, and hopefully some further reflection that will be a little different than it was then, hopefully. Um, but I forgot much of what I said, so I'm sure those guys did too. Um, but hoping to reflect more on that, spark some good conversations around this passage and this teaching. Uh, and then added, as an added bonus of God's grace, it was good getting back into things to have a sermon with some structure. Uh, so that was just sort of a blessing to me in the midst of this. Uh, but I want to look at Genesis 1, uh, beginning in verse 1. And let's go ahead and just read the passage um, right, right off the bat. Genesis 1, and we'll actually go into chapter 2 uh, to verse 3. So look with me at God's word, uh, Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And as I read this, if you would keep an eye out for some repeated words, repeated phrases, and then also maybe do you find a, a shift in thought, maybe an unexpected change in the pattern that's within this passage. Just keep an eye out for those things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth, brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. 
then there was evening, then there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their, their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the flesh, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day, from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now Genesis 1 is a very familiar passage. It's, it's familiar within the church and it's familiar without the church. And familiarity can be helpful, but it can also be a problem. Uh, it can be a problem, namely, because we all step into Genesis 1 with some sort of preconceived idea about what it's trying to communicate. I start reading Genesis 1, and you say, oh yeah, I know what that says. I know what that's about. We've heard sermons and lectures on this passage, and every year when you say, I'm going to read through the whole Bible, this is where you start, and however far you get, you at least get Genesis 1 done, right? Even if you get one day, you've got Genesis 1 completed. So, I, it's very familiar, and I'm not telling you that I have figured out the secret. Everything that you've heard about Genesis 1 before is wrong. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. If I ever say something like that, you probably shouldn't listen to me. Um, rather, what I want us to remember is focusing on, on Genesis 1, that we need to focus on what the text says and what the text is focusing on, not what someone else has told us to focus on. I think as we think about the controversy that surrounds Genesis 1, the discussions and the disagreements that come out of it, I think a lot of it has less to do with what the passage says and more with what we bring to the passage and think it says and have decided that it says. I remember reading this back in January and saying, wow, I feel like I'm reading this in some ways for the first time because I'm trying to look at it a little bit deeper and understand it deeper. 
when we do that, we want the text to be king. We want we want scripture to tell us what it says. Scripture um, does not need to fit into our theological categories. Scripture needs to shape our theological categories. Let's let the Bible tell us what to believe. For many of us, if not most of us, we come to this passage with a, a framework, with a, a worldview, and it often begins with this question, how? We see clearly that God has created the world, and the question we want to answer is how? How did he do it? We assume that that's where the Bible is beginning. That's what it's focusing on. So we ask questions like, was it six literal days? Was there a gap? Were these days actually ages? How do I fight atheistic evolution with the ammunition of Genesis chapter 1? Now, I think Genesis 1 certainly speaks to the how question of, of what God has done. And I think those are all good questions that we need to ask. But my question is, is that the focus? Is the primary purpose of Genesis chapter 1 to answer the question, how did God create the world? Or is Genesis 1 more about who created the world? Is it more about the who of God, and is it more about the purpose and the reason for which God created the world? I think how questions are important. But aren't why questions, purpose questions, don't they seem a little bit more pertinent and important to us? Doesn't it seem to make sense that if God is going to open his revealed word to us, and if, if God is the pinnacle of all things, that he's going to begin, not necessarily by describing what he made, but by helping us understand who he is. I think who question, the who question and the why question, that these are more important than the how question. And I, I say that because I think that's what the text wants us to answer. I think that Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, wants us to focus on who created the world and why he did it, more than understanding how he did it. A clue to that, I think, is within the genre. Uh, genre just means the, the type of literature. What kind of literature is this? What, what type of literature is Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3? I think if I were to describe it, I often would say it's a list. <laughs> it's just sort of bullet points. Here's what God made. Here's the day on which he made it. Now, when I was a kid, I think I, I felt like it was important that I needed to know the day and what God made on that day. That that was what I needed to know about this passage. Well, day one, he made this. Day two, he made this. But as I, as I look at this, I think it's less of a list, and it's, it's more of a song. There's a rhythm to this, isn't there? There's a, there's a melody to this passage. This repetition of words, there was evening, there was morning, the, the fifth day, the sixth day. There's the, it all begins, if you, if you have paragraphs in your Bible, they all start with, and God said, and God said, and God said. It's like there's a, a song going through. It's almost a two-part song where you have days one through three where God creates these forms, and then days four through six, he, he fills them. And then there's sort of this interlude where he creates the human, human beings. And then there's kind of a, a tag on the end where we see the, the difference of day seven in verses one through three of chapter two. It's like a key change, as it were. And in all of this, God is, God is speaking his world into existence, and he's rejoicing over it with this phrase, and it was good. And, and it was good up until the, the sixth day where he says, everything is very good. And then on the seventh day, he rests. What a beautiful song it is. The song of creation, the song of the creator. I think Genesis 1 is saying many things. Like I said, I'm not saying it says nothing about the house. But I think it's saying uh, so much more than that. The first three chapters of Scripture are so important to understanding 
the rest of the Bible, aren't they? I mean, understanding why God created the creation of human beings and the fall. These first three chapters are just packed full of important things to know. And chapter 1, it reveals God. It reveals Him as the sovereign Lord, the creator of all the earth. It begins right off the bat saying that Israel's God is the one who created the, everything, the, what every other God is rooted in. So, I mean, think about Israel saying, we believe in one God, and then there's all these other religions in the world that believe in many gods, and their gods are rooted in what? In the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and in the earth, and in the plants, and in the animals. And Israel comes in with this revelation through Moses and says, well, actually, our God made all of this. Usually the Creator is exalted above everything that He creates. And God is being exalted above any other God that could ever be conceived of. He is the source of all of these things. This passage shows who God is. It shows the goodness of creation and how that reflects the goodness of God. There's so many ways we could summarize Genesis 1. So here's here's one way. Here's how we're going to think about it this morning. How we're going to think about this song, this, this poem. It's like this. The command to rejoice in the beauty and purpose of creation and seek the rest that is its final goal. This is how we'll summarize Genesis 1 this morning. Rejoice in the beauty and purpose of creation and seek the rest that is its final goal. Key words rejoice and rest. Rejoice in the beauty and the purpose of creation and seek the rest that is its final goal. We said that those who and those why questions seem to be at the heart of the passage. And, and in, in framing the passage that way, I'm focusing more on the why. Okay, so we're going to think about why did God make the world, and we're, we're forming it around these ideas of rejoicing and rest. So the call of Genesis 1 is a call to rejoice, to rejoice in who God is as he is reflected in the world that he has made, and then to find and to seek the rest that is a part of this world, to see, in fact, that God is the final goal of our rejoicing and all of our rest. Joy and rest. Isn't that what we all want? I want to be happy and I want to, I want to find rest and peace in life. I mean, that's what we're all looking for. That's what, not, not just Christians, I think it's what everyone is looking for. And we all look for it in different ways. How encouraging then that the Bible opens with God modeling for us how to find joy and rest and then calling us to find them both. The problem, of course, appears in Genesis 3 with sin's entrance into the world. And what happens there is that we seek joy and rest apart from God. And when we do that, we end up finding neither of them. That's the state of all of us apart from God's redemption. Sin distorts these things in our pursuit of them. So what we're going to let God's word do here, as it says in 2 Timothy, is we're going to let God's word correct us. Let, let it correct us to see how we can find joy and rest in what God has made and ultimately in God himself. We want to learn how to rejoice in the beauty and the purpose of creation and seek the rest that is its vulnerable. We should begin by thinking about um, who this passage was first speaking to, the, this sort of original audience. Who was um, Moses when he wrote this? Who was he writing to? Of course, there's debate on this, as there's a debate about pretty much anything in the world. Um, but these first five of books of the Bible are generally said to be have, to have been written by Moses and given to the children of Israel just before they entered into the promised land. So these are, are men and women who know that they are the promised seed of Abraham. Uh, they know um, that they are growing into a great nation. 
In fact, in many ways, they already are at this point. They're a massive group of people. And they see this land before them that has been promised to them, and they're preparing to enter into it after decades of wandering in the desert. If I'm them, you know what I'm longing for? I'm longing for rest. I am tired of wandering. They had tasted, they had the spies go in, and so they tasted some of the the fruit of Canaan, and now they just want to get into that land. They want to rest, and they want to rejoice in everything that God has given them. As I was studying this, I was thinking about um, my recent time back in November in the Philippines. And those final two days, I just wanted to be home. <laughs> I wanted to be in a place with food that I knew, uh, where people spoke a language that I knew. I wanted to be in my home and in my shower where I could open my mouth up in the shower. And I wanted to be in my bed. Uh, there was some unrest, maybe because of the roosters that were crowing in the morning or the, the narrowness of those plain seats, but I was just ready. I loved being there. I was ready to be home. I think that's how the Israelites are. They, they want to be home, even though they've never even been to this home, but they just, they just want to be there. It's the longest camping trip ever that they've been on, right? And they just want to be at home, just like if you go camping after a few days, you say, okay, this is fun, and I'm ready for a shower and a pillow top mattress and a good night's sleep. Uh, and so God opens this communication with, the, with these Israelites. Think about them. On the cusp of the promised land, he says, I've created this world for you to rejoice and to give you rest. That would just hit their hearts, and it hits our hearts. This song, is it resolves in rest. Now, before we get to this place of, of rest, though, we, we're led through the forming of the world, the forming and the filling of it. So I want to walk through this, and I just want to share five things not obviously everything that's in Genesis chapter 1. We could do series after series on Genesis chapter 1 probably. But I wanted to bring us back to this idea of rest and how we can rejoice in the beauty of creation and the purpose of creation and then find rest as its final book. So five things. The first thing is this, the creative power of the Word of God. The creative power of the Word of God. The, the passage begins... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. But then we see God's doing something. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Something's going to happen here. It's amazing. God starts to speak, and when he speaks, things begin to happen. He calls forth the, the light and the land. He calls forth the plants and the animals. And all it takes for him to make these things is, is his word. There's this repetition of speaking and creating. God says, and it, and it was. That's amazing, isn't it? I think that's a power that we all kind of want, to speak things into reality. I remember this commercial when I was a kid for the clapper. Remember the clapper? Uh, it's this device you could plug your lamp into, and then you plug that into the wall, and, and you could just go, and your light would turn off. Or your TV would turn off or something like that. And for some reason, I just thought this was the coolest thing in the world. I want my parents to buy this. You know, I think a remote control is just another thing. You're trying to do that's less noisy. You just press a little button and you're trying to make it work. Of course, now we have what? Siri and how many names? Cortana and Alexa and OK Google. And you can you have the ability to say something and and it and it does something for you which is not even close to what God is doing here. It gives us a little inkling of what we, we, we want that, and we have an idea of what that's like. But we will never be able to create 
something out of nothing by the power of our word alone. But God does. And he doesn't just create it. What does he do? He invents it. Now, I could, you know, take this apple. And I could say, if I, if I could say apple, and an apple showed up here, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> pretty amazing, right? But, but God invents the apple. I mean, God designs what this is. He, he doesn't just create it, he invents it. Before God said, let there be light, there was no such thing as light. He came up with the idea of light. We can rejoice in creation. You can go to the mountains or the beach. Those are typically the two places we go on vacation. God not, didn't just make those. He came up with the idea of beach. He came up with the idea of a mountain. He came up with every plant on the ground and every animal in the zoo. And he brought them into existence by his word. So just think about that. God invented this apple. And he created it by the word of his power. This shows us how powerful God's word is. That he can create just by speaking. So the first thing we see is the creative power of the word of God. And that's all throughout this passage. The second thing that I want to point out is the filling and the ordering of God's word. So number two, the filling and ordering of God's world. We read this passage and, and we look at the world around us and because of that we reject the notion of the deist. The deist says that God created the world and then removed himself from it. We believe that God is actively involved in the world that he has made. But we also embrace the fact that, that God has ordered the world to, to function well that he has created processes that, that keep the world going in an amazing way. I don't think that necessarily means that he's uninvolved in the process. G.K. Chesterton says it may be that God makes every daisy separately because he has never got tired of making them. I love that thought. And yet there's also this beauty that there's a seed that forms daisies. Genesis 1 emphasizes that God has not only made the substance of this world, but he's also made it to function and to order well. More another story from my childhood. Maybe I'm just going back to being a youth or something. I don't know. But I was thinking about this game I used to play called Roller Coaster Tycoon. It was on the computer, and you could design roller coasters. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Maybe because I live close to Cedar Point. Jordan knows that. When you're close to Cedar Point, you just love roller coasters. Uh, and so I would love designing them. But in this game, you couldn't just make a roller coaster. You had to make a theme park. And when you make a theme park, you have to make line cues, and you have to have enough trash cans and enough benches for people to sit on. You have to create this whole world. You can't just make a roller coaster. You have to make a theme park, and it has to function well. And and I, I think about that, that God just didn't make these things, but he made the world that it's ordered well. It flows together. It works in a functional, beautiful way. We brushed past this earlier, but creation, it, it, it it's divided, as it were, into two triads, two groups of, of three. So days one through three, um, God begins, he, he forms, uh, he makes the forms. So light in verses 3 through 5, sky and seas in verses 6 through 8, dry land with vegetation in verses 11 through 13. And then in the second group of three days, he fills all of these forms that he has made. So he takes where he's created light in this, this expanse, and he fills them with all the different lights. That's in verses 14 through 19. Then in verses 20 through 23, you have all the inhabitants of the sky and the sea, birds and fish. He had made those, and now he fills them, as it were, with all of these creatures. And then verses 24 through 32, he fills the dry land 
with animals and, and humans to eat all the vegetation that is there. So he creates these forms and then he fills them up. There's order to it all. It's all ordered and, and we find that order is reflective of our creator. When you clean your desk, as I did this week, and you take the, the chaos of your kitchen and you bring order to it, you are reflecting God in some way who has made an ordered world. I try to help my kids see this when I tell them to clean, but they still kind of groan, you know. We are bringing order. We are reflecting our Creator. They want to sit on the couch, so that's okay. We see order in the church as well. I was just reading in 1 Corinthians this week, and Paul tells the church to move away from chaos because he says this. He says, everything should be done decently and in order because our God is a God of peace. I love that. The church isn't supposed to be crazy. Why? Because that's what because God is a God of order and peace. Not just plants, but all the animals and the, the, the sea creatures and the human beings. But we're part of this. God God invents this this apple, right? But watch this. So God takes an apple and what's inside here? Do you know? It, do you know? No, you're looking at it. Uh, it's not as good as the one we had here. But what do you, what's in there? Seeds. If it's a good one, you get a nice star right in the middle there. This one's not as awesome as some. But there's a seed in here. And, and the purpose is that it, it would multiply. He creates this, this seed-bearing process. I can take this seed, one of them, and plant it in the ground. And I can fertilize it. And with enough time and energy and electric fences to keep all the squirrels away, uh, I can have apples for years to come. Isn't that amazing? God God came up with this idea. And not just plants, but animals and the sea creatures, and we are human beings are called to be a part of this multiplication. If you were looking at patterns, there's this shift in pattern. Because every time that God is speaking, up until verse 22, every time he's saying, he says, let there be something. Let there be this. He's, he's filling and ordering. But then in verse 22, God blesses the animals that he has made. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let birds multiply on the earth. There's this amazing blessing where he says, I have filled the earth. Now you fill the earth. You are part of this process. You multiply. You, you do this. And then he does the same thing for human beings in verse 28. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But he adds and subdue it and have dominion. Human beings are then called to not just multiply and fill the earth, but what? Bring order to it. Subdue it. Rule over it. That leads us to the third thing I want to say, which is the uniqueness of human beings. The uniqueness of human beings. If this is a song, there's a, there's a, I don't know if you want to call it a key change or whatever you might want to say, a bridge. In verse 26, God is speaking and this time he's not speaking to create, and he's not speaking to bless, but rather there's this divine counsel. It's an allusion to the, to the Trinity, to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit coming together to create the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman. It's so right that this happens out of the Trinity. It reminds us that God didn't create human beings because he was lonely. I'll say that God didn't create us because he was, he was lonely. There was an eternal community of love in the Godhead that existed before the world began, and God was perfectly content. Not just content. I, I want to say this, and 
maybe it's just something to, to discuss for that. I'm going to say it, and I, I, I'm, I'm fairly positive that I believe this, but work with me on it, okay? I think we could say that the world could never have been created as it currently is, and the Trinity would still fully represent the beauty and the joy and the rest and the order that we are all looking for. That God was complete in and of himself. And this is just a reflection of what is already in the Trinity. Now, I, I don't I don't want to exalt human beings to the place of filling something up that's lacking in God, but I also don't want to equate men and women with apples or, or with apes. There's something unique about who we are. There's a uniqueness to human beings as those that are created in God's image to represent Him in this world. So God has this meeting with himself, and as Tim Keller says it, he says, so the Trinity within itself says, let's expand the community. We have this community of love. Let's expand it. Let's, let's create men and women to be a part of this. And so he crafts Adam and breathes the breath of life into him. He makes man and woman in his image. There's actually a song within the song. Verse 27 is a, is a song within this song. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He welcomes us into the joy of knowing him. We are created out of relationship, the relationship of the Trinity, and we are created for relationship. For relationship with God, but also for relationship with one another. And then he gives us this world to care for and, and to enjoy. And as we said, we reflect him. We bring order to the world, but we also fill it, just as he did. Just as God filled and ordered the world, that's what we are called to do. The uniqueness of human beings. Fourth, the, the goodness of God's creation. That's the next thing I wanted to see. The goodness of God's creation. If you want to point, if you're thinking about repetition, the repetition of it is good, it was good, it was good, it was good, that's all over the place, isn't it? It's not just some sort of stamp of approval, but it is, it is a rejoicing in what God has made. It's him seeing the beauty of the earth and the sky and the sea and everything that he's filled it with. And he says, this is good. This is great. It's like the sigh of satisfaction when you have a glass of water on a, on a, cold, on a hot day or maybe a cup of coffee on a cold day. It's, it's, this is good. I love this. God rejoices in his creation and he calls us to rejoice in it. So here's this apple, right? He gives us the apple. He creates the seed-bearing process. And you know what? It's really good. It tastes delicious. And, you know, I didn't do this one because it's hard to preach and talk. And actually, I, I cut up a bunch of apples. If you want some. Kids, if you want an apple, taste the, the joy. Of, uh, they're on this back table right here. You can get one if you want. I won't be mad at all. Um, it'll give me time to chew mine, right? But God God makes this, and he makes it good. He makes it delicious. It's something that we are to enjoy. And we can make things out of it, right? I love apple pie. Those muffins are apple streusel muffins. Um, I like apple cinnamon Cheerios. But this is all, you know, what God has made. God created this, and it's good, and we are called to enjoy it. We are to, to love it. We are to to find pleasure in it. And all of that is rooted in the fact that God made it. And it reflects Him. And that He is good. 
He gives us more than apples and animals to rejoice in. He gives us one another. The gift of, of community. He gives us friends. He gives us family. He creates us as male and female, and he calls us to find joy in, in one another. The blessing of marriage, the blessing of children, the blessing of, of this community, the beauty of being in relationship with one another. There's, there's something good to that. And yet it's all still God-centric. It's all still focused on Him. These joys re- reflect God. They, they show who He is, just as all of creation does. It, I'm not supposed to find my greatest joy in an apple, but the sweetness of the apple points me to the, the sweetness of who God is. The beauty of it shows me how great God is. And we are to rejoice in it as a rejoicing in Him. And that leads us to this final point, number five, the goal of rest. The goal of rest. I think the chapter break here is so unfortunate. Uh, to make a break here is like if I told the kids to, you know, let's recite the days of the week beginning with Sunday. And we went like this. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. What am I forgetting? Saturday. To put a break here, it, it's missing the whole week. The, the, the week is not complete without without Saturday. you got to have Saturday. And within the context of the Old Testament, the whole Bible for that matter, the, the Sabbath, the seventh day is so important. In fact, I think that this chapter in many ways is pushing us all the way to this point, that this is actually the resolution, that, it's, that, that the resting is so vitally important. When we include these, these three verses... This lays out a pattern. Not, not just, it lays out a pattern for the book of Genesis. Where do we end in the book of Genesis? We, rent, we end in, in Egypt, and there's, there's rest in Goshen. Things are going well in Goshen. But even the Pentateuch itself, we end at Deuteronomy, and they are getting ready to enter into the promised land that, that God's word has carried them, and now they're getting ready to rest. And the whole of Scripture begins with, with God's word. And where are we leading to in Genesis chapter, I mean, in Revelation uh, 21 and 22. It's rest. That is the longing that we have. And, and there's this flow that's going all the way to here. In fact, some people say that we are still in this seventh day, that there's this, this rest that we're waiting for, that actually the day isn't over yet. You notice he doesn't say there's evening and there's morning, the seventh day. Interesting. Something to, to contemplate. But God is, God's life-giving, uh, joy-giving word, it, it gives us rest. What is rest? Here's one definition we can work with and we can think more about it. Rest is freedom from toil and freedom to rejoice. It's freedom from toil and freedom to rejoice. Not freedom from work. Work is not bad, but toil is. That's what happens after the curse. And rest is freedom from toil, but also freedom to rejoice. It's better better than rest would be cease. Is, is the word. Alan Ross, commentator, says that rest is not a word that refers to remedying exhaustion after a tiring week of work. Rather, it describes the enjoyment of accomplishment, the celebration of completion. That's good. It's the feeling that Elaine and I had when we finally got all of our leaves raked up a few weeks ago. Yes, I raked my leaves in February, um, and it drove me crazy that they were out there, and we were tired. And we were a little sore, but we'd look out the back window, and it was beautiful. It was just this place of peace. And we saw this wonderfully well-ordered yard, and we had worked hard for it. And I felt good to just 
rest. So rest follows work. But it doesn't have to do with being tired. If we don't rest well, it may be because we don't work hard. If we don't rest well, it also could be that we work too hard. We toil and we don't know when to stop. There's some sort of balance here. When we have completed and accomplished something, we have created the space to rest and to enjoy it, to set a time aside time to enjoy and rejoice in what God has given. I think there's a balance here because we'll never really finish anything. You know, you're always fighting back against entropy in this world, against decay, against the whole falling apartness that's all around us. If we completely ignore that, then there's no rest. I ignored my leaves for a while, and it drove me nuts, and I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, and then we did it, and it felt like rest. But guess what? There are more leaves out there eventually. <laughs> there's leaves out there now that I could take care of. And, and if I was just waiting for every task to be done, then I would never rest. We all have a tendency to be one way or the other, I think. They just want to lapse into laziness and try to find rest, but really it's just plaguing our minds. That's the category that I would probably lean towards. And some of us just work too hard and we say, well, i got to finish everything. I'm not allowed to rest until everything's done. And then we never do. There's a balance in here somewhere. And yet rest is sort of a funny thing, I think, because it's different for everyone. What's restful for you may drive me crazy and, and vice versa. Because I think rest is really tied to joy. That we rest, we find rest by what we take joy in. That's, I think, what God is doing here. He's enjoying what He has made. And we find joy in different things. When I was on this sabbatical, you know what one of my goals was? To bake bread. That felt restful to me. I wanted to do it. I wanted to learn how to do it. And I love the process of making it. And I don't usually have that time to think, see things rise and get into the oven. And it was enjoyable. I went to the Abbey of Gethsemane and spent time in silence. I told some people about that, and they said, I can never do that. That would not be restful at all to me. And, and everyone's different. And we need to know what, what, what fills our hearts with, with rest and with, with peace. But if, if we rest in what brings us joy, then that leads us to this greater truth, that, that true rest and true joy will be found in Christ. That that's ultimately where we rest. That's ultimately where we find peace. Ultimately where we find joy. Our greatest joy is found in Him. He invites us to find joy in the rest that comes from relationships and the rest that comes from baking bread or backyard fires or books. These are all things that give me rest. Sometimes TV brings rest, but I think it has a low threshold. There's a tipping point with television where it quickly moves from being life-giving to joy-sucking. Uh, and there's some of it there maybe, but we got to know where that's at. I think the created order, I think we, we should follow God's lead and rejoice in what he has made in all these different ways, whether in solitude or in community. We find rest in this community. This is a place of rest. We, we seek the rest that God has given us. And we do it through what he has given us. And yet, here's, here's an interesting thought. I, I took a bite of this apple, right, to, to show you how to rejoice in what God has made. But I could take a bite of this apple to also model how the world completely fell apart. That it was actually in, it probably wasn't an apple, who knows what it was, but when Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's what crushed everything. It wasn't that the, that the fruit was bad. It was that they were told not to eat it. 
And they sought joy, they sought satisfaction, they sought rest, they sought dominion outside of what God had said to do. That's where we always get into trouble. It was a forbidden fruit. It, and they thought it would bring joy, but it just brought pain. They thought it would bring life, but it brought death. They thought it would bring rest, but it brought toil. And so we consider this call to rejoice and to seek rest, but we live in the shadow of Genesis 3. We live in this world that's been broken by the fall, a world of death and destruction where there is no rest fully and where we often rejoice wrongly in the good things that God has given. So how is God going to restore it? How is God going to make it right? He's going to do it the same way that he does in Genesis chapter 1. He's going to do it through his word. Through the word of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and he doesn't create us, he recreates us. And he offers us rest. And how does he do it? He does it by himself coming into the world that he made and being destroyed by the suffering and the sin that we brought into it by rejoicing wrongly in what he was given. And because of the sin that scars this world, he had to come and to die. And yet he, he rises victorious and he offers us new life and he offers us eternal rest. So if I've confused you in any of these musings, I'll just be real clear here. Jesus is the rest that we need. He is the rest for our souls. He is the one who rescues us from the sin that breaks us and leaves us hopeless of ever finding joy or rest. Jesus takes all the toil and all of the pain and all of the punishment that comes as a result of sin so that through faith in his finished work we can find rest for our souls for all eternity. Jesus is the final definition of what rest is. Genesis 1 is not bullet points. It's not a list of what God made and on what day he did it. If that's all it is, then it will be as helpful for my soul as a grocery list. I mean, that's not to say I don't need a grocery list. I think a grocery list is very helpful. I need it more than most of you probably. Um, but just as I, 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 in the same way I need a grocery list, I need to understand, I need to think about how God has made this world. But if Genesis 1 is, is a song, if it's a poem, if it's a, a, a picture of what God has done in creating the world of life and, and goodness and enjoy, then it becomes very practical. It becomes very encouraging on a Sunday afternoon when the day is starting to slip away from you and you remember what tomorrow is. Monday. I go back to work. It's coming. Or you look at your living room or your backyard or your bathroom and you say, oh, things are falling apart. <laughs> you may need to do some work. You may need to work a little hard. But you may need to grab yourself an apple uh, or maybe, uh, better yet, a cup of coffee, something sweet if you got it. Uh, take a deep breath. Just sort of look at the world that God has made. Look at the, look at the Word. Look at Jesus and, and the Scriptures and find that we're able to rejoice in all circumstances. Part of the rest that comes at the end of Genesis is that we can see God's hand even in difficulty. That's what the Gospel is telling us. That He is the one who redeems us and will one day redeem and restore all creation. That the lack of joy that we often feel and the lack of rest that we often have is not the way that it's supposed to be. That's not the way that God originally created the world. And Genesis 1 shows us the way things were supposed to be. And it shows us the way things will one day be. 
in part because, in fact, it will be even better when God recreates the world. Better than Eden. We find tastes of joy and rest in this world, and we want to know more of them. When we reflect the beauty of our Creator, we seek to, to fill the world with order and joy as He does. And we can know that any rest that we have now, any joy that we have now, is a reflection of the rest and the joy that we have in Christ and that we will fully have in Christ one day. The call to rejoice in the beauty and the purpose of creation and to seek that is the, and, and to seek the rest that its final goal becomes not just a call to rejoice in what's around us. It's a call to rejoice and to rest in God himself because he is our joy and he is our peace. Let's pause for a, a moment of silence and we'll reflect on God's word and then I will pray for us. Father, when we consider all the worlds that you have made, stars and the rolling thunder, we are taken back. We see the beauty of everything. But even within relationships, we see the wonder of who you are. And yet, Lord, when we think that you didn't spare your own son, but delivered him up for us all, and will also with him freely give us all things where we are um, we are speechless before the beauty of all that you've given us but teach us how to rejoice in what you've made teach us how to find joy in this creation but let it be a, just a taste that points us to you that shows us the greatness of who you are that shows us the beauty of Christ Lord, he is the one that gives us rest he is the one that gives us true joy Lord, help us to reflect on your word and to be changed by it more and more. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.